Welcome to The Word at First Prez. As we begin the new year, we're doing a sermon series called Top 5. The question this series is designed to answer is, what are the top five things every Christian should know about God? Each week, we will look at a different aspect of who God is and how oftentimes it controverts our traditional understanding of how we think about God. I hope you enjoy. Our first scripture reading is from Alex's favorite book, Genesis, chapter 39, a whole bunch of different verses. (laughs) Now Joseph was taken down to Egypt by Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh the captain of the guard, an Egyptian, brought him from the Ishmaelites who had brought him down there. That guy has a lot of titles. (laughs) The Lord was with Joseph, and he became a successful man. He was in the house of his Egyptian master. His master saw that the Lord was with him and that the Lord caused all that he did to prosper in his hands. So Joseph found favor in his sight and attended him. He made him overseer of his house and put him in charge of all that he had. Now, Joseph was handsome and good-looking. And after a time, his master's wife cast her eyes on Joseph and said, Lie with me. And although she spoke to Joseph day after day, he would not consent to lie beside her or to be with her. One day, however, when he went into the house to do his work, And while no one else was in the house, she caught hold of his garment, saying, Lie with me. But he left his garment in her hand and fled and ran outside. When she saw that he had left his garment in her hand and had fled outside, she called out to the members of her household and said to them, See, my husband has brought among us a Hebrew to insult us. He came in to lie with me, and I cried out with a loud voice. And when he heard me raise up my voice and cry out, he left his garment beside me and fled outside. When his master heard these words that his wife spoke to him, saying, this is the way your servant treated me, he became enraged. And Joseph's master took him and put him into the prison, the place where the king's prisoners were confined. He remained there in prison. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Pete. So this is, the, this is a continuation of that story. So he's in prison, and it says, After two whole years, Pharaoh dreamed that he was standing by the Nile. And there came up out of the Nile seven sleek and fat cows, and they grazed in the reed grass. Then seven other cows, ugly and thin, came up out of the Nile after them and stood by the other cows on the bank of the Nile. The ugly and thin cows ate up the seven sleek and fat cows, And Pharaoh awoke. Then he fell asleep and dreamed a second time. Seven ears of grain, plump and good, were growing on one stalk. Then seven ears, thin and blighted by the east wind, sprouted after them. The thin ears swallowed up the seven plump and full ears. Pharaoh awoke, and it was a dream. In the morning his spirit was troubled, so he sent and called for all the magicians of Egypt and all its wise men. Pharaoh told them his dreams but there was no one who could interpret them to Pharaoh. Then the chief cupbearer said to Pharaoh, I remember my faults today. Once Pharaoh was angry with his servants and put me and the chief baker in custody in the house of the captain of the guard. We dreamed on the same night and he and I, each having a dream with its own meaning. 
A young Hebrew was there with us, a servant of the captain of the guard. We told him he interpreted our dreams to us, giving an interpretation to each according to his dream. As he interpreted to us, so it turned out, I was restored to my office and the baker was hanged. Then Pharaoh sent for Joseph and he was hurriedly brought out of the dungeon. When he had shaved himself and changed his clothes, he came in before Pharaoh. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, I've had a dream and there was no one who can interpret it. I've heard it said of you that when you hear a dream, you can interpret it. And Joseph answered Pharaoh, it is not I. God will give Pharaoh a favorable answer. Then Joseph said to Pharaoh, Pharaoh's dreams are one and the same. God has revealed to Pharaoh what he is about to do. The seven good cows are seven years, and the seven good ears are seven years. The dreams are one. The seven lean and ugly cows that came up after them are seven years, as are the seven empty ears blighted by the east wind. They are seven years of famine. It is as I told Pharaoh, God has shown to Pharaoh what he is about to do. There will come seven years of great plenty throughout all the land of Egypt. After them, there will arise seven years of famine, and all the plenty will be forgotten in the land of Egypt. The famine will consume the land. The plenty will no longer be known in the land because of the famine that will follow, for it will be very grievous. And the doubling of Pharaoh's dreams means that the thing is fixed by God, and God will shortly bring it about. Now therefore, let Pharaoh select a man who is discerning and wise and set him over the land of Egypt. Let Pharaoh proceed to appoint overseers over the land and take one-fifth of the produce of the land of Egypt during the seven plentous years. Let them gather all the food of these good years that are coming up and lay up grain under authority of Pharaoh for food in the cities and let them keep it. That food shall be a reserve for the land against the seven years of famine that are to befall the land of Egypt, so that the land may not perish through the famine. The proposal pleased Pharaoh and all his servants. Pharaoh said to his servants, can we find anyone else like this, one in whom the spirit is the spirit of God? So Pharaoh said to Joseph, since God has shown you all this, there is no one so discerning and wise as you. You shall be over my house, and all my people shall order themselves as you command. Only with regard to the throne will I be greater than you. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. We haven't done a sermon or scripture like that since Genesis, since we did the sermon series a long time ago. That was a long one. Thanks for dealing with it. So, we are doing a sermon series called Top 5, and this series is designed to answer the top five questions about some issue in the Christian faith. And what we're doing for the first iteration of the series is talking about the top five things that every Christian should know about God. Last week we talked about the connection between God and suffering. And what I explained to you is, is that if you believe in a God of unconditional love, which I assume most of you do, because that is Jesus' definition of God, then you quickly run into a problem. And that problem is suffering. If God really loves us, why is there so much suffering in the world? And the way I told you we can deal with this problem, it's pretty much the only way you can deal with it, is that you have to release God's control of the world. Which means that what happens to us in terms of suffering is really the result of two factors in our lives. Chance and choice. Now, I heard from a number of you about this, and I anticipated that I would, which is why I wrote the sermon that I wrote for today. 
And what I heard from people was, well, the way that you're talking about this makes it seem as though God really isn't here at all. Do you know deism? Do you know that concept of deism where basically God sets the universe into motion and then backs away and it just goes? They said it sounds a little bit like that. That is actually not what I believe. I believe God is very much present in our world. And today, to kind of get into this idea of where God is, how God acts and interacts with us, I want to talk about this idea of God's plan. I'm sure you all have heard this before. Have you ever heard anybody say God has a plan for your life? Yes? You've heard that at some point, I assume. So, I have heard that a lot, and I want to begin by telling you a story about my own life where I felt as though God had a plan for me. So, when I was in high school, I was not very focused on college. I know that will come as quite a shock to many parents who start talking to their kids about college from the time they are in preschool, but for me, I didn't really think about it until I was really like right there, like where it was, I was like really having to think about it. And I remember I went to a friend of mine and I asked him, I said, so where are you going to go to college? And he said, oh, well, my top school is uh, Rice University. And I was like, what's Rice University? It sounds like they have a very narrow diet. And he rolled his eyes at me as you are rolling your eyes at me right now. And he said, Rice is in Houston and it's one of the top academic institutions in the country, so don't you worry about it. You're not gonna get in. <laughs> and I said, okay, we'll see. So uh, a few months later, I'm sitting down with one of my swim coaches. Uh, you all, many of you know, I was a swimmer for a long time. I had a bunch of different coaches from different teams. This is my high school swim coach. And he said to me, he goes, Alex, where do you wanna go to school? And I said, well, the one place I'd really like to go is Rice University. Now, mind you, since the conversation I had had with my friend, I had done no research. I had no idea what the requirements were to get into the school. I probably couldn't even have found Houston on a map, to be perfectly honest with you. But all I knew was my friend told me I couldn't get in, and I wanted to prove him wrong. So my coach, who was a really good guy, like a really nice guy, was not very connected in the collegiate swimming world. I mean, he's a high school coach, and he said to me, he goes, well, Alex, I don't really know many college coaches. I've only met a few in passing, but the one business card that I happen to have in my wallet is from the assistant coach at Rice University. And she's a good friend of mine. Let me give her a call, and we'll see what we can do. So one thing leads to another, and eventually I am offered a spot and the men's swimming team at Rice University. And I remember the night that I got the call. So I was upstairs with my friend Chen, we were talking and my dad calls me down, he's like, you got a phone call? And it was the coach. And she said, uh, I'd like to offer you a spot and a scholarship. Uh, I can't wait any longer. Now this is what she meant by that. She had informed me when I went down to visit the team that I was a tier two candidate for them. And what that meant was, is that they were looking for somebody who was faster and had better grades. Understandable, as the vast majority of people who were there are like my wife, they were valedictorian of their high school class, which was pretty much everyone. That was not me. So uh, I was not thinking that that was going to happen, and the other people passed by, so it gave me an opportunity, which was fantastic. And it was really against the odds. I mean, you're talking about a very small chance that I would get into a school like that. Oh, and my friend, in case you're wondering about him, the one who told me that I wouldn't get in, yeah, he got rejected. So. <laughs> Not that I revel in that or anything, or think about it all the time. So, 
I get a letter a couple months later after I've been accepted, and the letter is telling me that the coaching staff has changed on the swim team. And when I get to school, I find out that, in fact, the coach who had brought me on had been fired from her job three days after she offered me the position. And I looked at that, and I thought to myself, my goodness, like, God must have had a plan for my life. Because what are the odds? I mean, just think about all the things that had to fall into place, right? So I picked this school out of thin air that I know nothing about. I only choose it because my friend tells me that I can't get in. The only coach that my coach knows in the entire collegiate swimming you know, arena out there happens to be at Rice University. And then I get the call and I get on the team three days before she's fired. Had she waited three days? Had they fired her earlier? None of that would have happened. And Rice changed my life in huge ways because it allowed me to go to Oxford and Princeton, which you know I was waiting to say, and it also allowed me to really become the kind of pastor that I wanted to be. And the most important thing, my wife's watching, is that I met my wife there at Rice. So these are some huge things that happened to me. And it was hard for me at the time I remember thinking to myself, you know what, it felt like God was engineering all of these variables in my life so that I could go down this road and become the pastor that I wanted to be. And I assume that for many of you at different points in your life, you have felt that way as well. That there were things that aligned that really probably shouldn't have happened, but then did happen. And you're like, wow, I can't believe that this occurred. Now, if you were here last week, you probably know that even though I told you this story and I felt that way at one time, I don't actually believe that any longer. And I want to tell you why today I have veered away from that type of thinking. Because the question that we're going to try to answer today is very simple. Does God have a plan for each of our lives? Does God have this roadmap that's been laid out for every single one of us? And to answer that question... I want to turn to our story of Joseph for today, because Joseph is a great story. It's probably, it is arguably the best written story in the entire Bible. I, my Hebrew professor actually said that, that in terms of the Hebrew, there's actually nothing written better than this particular story about Joseph. So, let's just go over it real, qu- real quick what happens. Joseph, he is the most beloved son of his father Jacob, and Jacob has a lot of sons, And this builds up animosity to the point where they decide they're just going to kill him. But then at the last minute, they see this slave trader coming, and they're like, hold on, we'll sell him into slavery. So they sell him, he gets sent down to Egypt, and he ends up in the house of Potiphar. Now that's because he is educated. And he gets into that house, and he rises to manage all of the other slaves. He becomes the manager. As you heard T.C. read, what happens, though, is because he's a good-looking guy, Potiphar's wife wants to have an affair with him, and he keeps pushing her away, and eventually she corners him, grabs for him, and rips his tunic from his body, unable to explain how that came into his possession, or her possession. She says, oh, he tried to rape me, which means he ends up getting sent to the royal prison. Now, this is different from a regular prison. The royal prison is actually a much nicer facility for political dissidents. Had he been sent to a regular prison, this story wouldn't have happened. But he's in the royal prison. So he gets there, and he meets the chief jailer, who then makes him uh, oversees all the prisoners. He basically becomes the overseer. And what happens is, is that eventually there are two members of Pharaoh's court 
who end up getting sent to this royal prison. Pharaoh's cupbearer and the chief baker. And they each have a dream. Now, at the time, I've told you all this before, they believed that God placed dreams in our mind at night and it would tell us about the future. That was the idea. So you needed an interpreter to be able to interpret what it meant, though. And of course, it just so happens that Joseph's specialty is what? Dream interpretation, right? So he interprets the dream. He says, here's what's going to happen. The cupbearer, you will be restored to his position. The baker is going to be hanged. And that is exactly what transpires. But the cupbearer, he forgets about Joseph, moves on with his life, right? Two years later, as we read, Pharaoh, he has this dream. Nobody can interpret the dream. And that's when the cupbearer is like, oh, I remember there was this guy in prison. He interpreted my dream, and he was right. And so they say, well, let's see if he, if he can do it. So they bring him up out of prison, and he interprets the dream. And what does he say? There's going to be, what, seven years of plenty, seven years of good harvest, seven years of famine. His recommendation is that during the years of plenty, you should store up some grain so that people can survive the seven years of famine. And Pharaoh says, hey, well, you're really good guy. Why don't we have you do it? And so he's appointed to the position that we commonly known as Grand Vizier, and that's the second in charge right beneath Pharaoh. And so when Joseph goes from being slave to savior in one fell swoop, I think that many Christians read this story and we see it as God has a plan for Joseph, that God was kind of engineering the variables all along so that ultimately he could go and save the Israelites from starvation. Now, there's some interesting parallels between Joseph's story and Jesus' story. So, what happens? Joseph suffers, right? He goes, he suffers, he gets enslaved, and then what happens? So that everybody can be saved, right? Does that sound like Jesus' story? Absolutely it does, right? Jesus suffers so that everyone can be saved. Now, there's other parallelisms between Joseph's story and Jesus' story. In fact, there's a lot of them. But perhaps the most important is this idea that God is kind of pushing humanity forward and trying to save humanity. Now, with the Joseph story, the saving is actually quite literal, right? Because with the Joseph story, what is he trying to do? He's, he literally, he rises up, and how does he save them? He saves them with what? He saves them with food, doesn't he? Like, he literally saves them with food. With Jesus, it's a little less tangible, right? So, Jesus, he ends up getting sacrificed, and it is through his blood that we are reconciled to God. That's the idea, right? So, he saves us with the sacrifice. In both instances, in both instances... God seems to be working through history to create these circumstances, right? So with Joseph, what happens? He, he falls into slavery. Here's the circumstances. He falls into slavery. You wouldn't think that anything good was going to come of that, but the variables come out in such a way that he has this ability of dream interpretation that allows him to rise up to r rule Egypt. Basically, it's what he's able to do. With Jesus, he is able to do a similar thing in the sense that he has these abilities. He can perform miracles, he can teach, right? He can do all these things. And then he, that catches the eye of the authorities. The authorities then put him on trial, he's crucified, and then he dies and is sacrificed. The idea being that there is this thread 
that connects the Old Testament and the New Testaments together. And that thread is that you have in the Old Testament this idea that God is working through history and that God is pushing humanity, everyone and everything. God wants us to be saved. That's the idea. Now, I will tell you that that as a plan, I know this will come as a surprise to you, I actually agree with that idea. I agree that that is God's plan. I agree that God is pushing everyone and everything towards redemption. I believe that to be true. Now, how that plan gets executed, though, I can tell you that I am going to veer and differentiate myself from the way traditional Christians would look at that. And to explain to you how I veer and how I differentiate myself from that, I need to explain to you, or we need to talk about how we as Westerners look at the world, because that's really important in this. So, as Westerners, we look at the world through a very individualistic lens. Do you know what I mean when I say that? The individual is paramount in the Western world, right? So what happens is we take this idea, this plan, and what we have translated that into is that God has a plan for every single human being on the planet. And that God has a roadmap for all of us. That's what we translate that into because we are so highly individualized. Which, in theory, is a wonderful idea. Like, that is a wonderful idea in theory. In practice, though, it actually doesn't work out super well. And I want to use Joseph's story to explain why that is the case. Okay, so in Joseph's story, how do we tend to read it? Like, when we read Joseph's story, who do we focus on? Who's our main focus? Joseph, obviously, it's his story, right? And we focus on him because, right, if he is not successful, then what happens? Everybody starves to death. So it's his story, and we need him to be successful, so we focus on him. But because we are so focused on Joseph, we tend to blur out all of the ancillary characters and the supporting cast that help him rise up. Let me talk about some ancillary characters, people you would never think of. Joseph was sold into slavery, was he not? So do you think he was the only person sold into slavery? No, of course not. There were plenty of other people sold into slavery, and the vast majority of them did not get cushy jobs in somebody's home. He only got that because he was, as I told you, educated. Most slaves were worked to death out in the fields or on building projects for the Egyptians. That's just the way they did it. Now, we don't think about any of those people, right? Because who we focused on? Joseph. But those people are there. That's an ancillary character. Let's talk about a main character, or, or a co-star, so to speak. The co-star, when, when he's in prison, who comes into prison? We have the cupbearer, Chief Baker, right? And he interprets their dreams. Now, cupbearer, he's restored. What happens to Chief Baker, though? He's killed, right? Oh, well. Well, you know, the whole thing is, is that he is the one who helps him rise up because he proves that he can interpret dreams well. See, here's the thing. Not everybody in life can be a Joseph, right? Not everybody comes out better on the other side of difficult circumstances. In fact, in life, the vast majority of us, we are the supporting characters. We're not the lead. But in the Western world, we've become so obsessed 
with the idea that you have this individual who rises above their circumstances that we kind of forget about everyone else, right? Like, so in a lot of these movies, did you ever watch the superhero movies? Like, in the superhero movies, like, I just went and saw the Matrix film. And the number of people who die in that film, like, just off to the side as you're going through it, you're like, oh, my God, like, like everybody's getting slaughtered. But because the main character's okay, you're like, whew, okay, everything's all right, right? You don't think about all those other people. And that's what we do because we're so focused on the main character that we kind of forget about all these other things that don't really work for the plan. So what about kids who die from cancer at a very young age? What about families who are murdered in genocide? What about the billions of people who live in abject poverty in the world? What are we going to say? What do you do with that? Well, a lot of times people say, well, we may not understand it, but God has a plan. Really? God has a plan for people who are murdered in genocide, kids who die from cancer, people living in abject poverty. That's the plan? See, what I have come to discover is that for people who have been successful in their lives and things have worked out for them, that idea works very nicely because it helps you deal with the fact that other people suffer. Because you can sit there and you can say, well, if God has a plan for me and I have been successful, then God must have a plan for them too, even if it's not immediately apparent what that plan is. But that's not the way I think God works. I don't think God has a plan for every single individual, an individualized roadmap. I don't think God plans for suffering for some and good things for others. As I told you last week, I think the reason why we suffer is from chance and choice. Those are the two things that cause our suffering. But I do believe, and this is where God comes into play, I do believe in this big mess that's called life, that God's role is to bring redemption to all of it. And I want to explain to you how that happens. Because I do believe that God is in the midst of everything. So, how does it occur? What happens? Let's go back to Joseph's story. Who do we focus on in Joseph's story? Because we're in the Western world, we focus on Joseph. How would they have read it in the ancient world? In the ancient world, when they would have come to this story, you have to realize that for them, the individual is not nearly as important as the community. So from their vantage point, right, when they're thinking about it, the payoff of the story is not Joseph's individual accomplishments. Like, that's not the payoff. The payoff is, how did Joseph's individual accomplishments benefit and impact the community he's there to serve? You see, we put the emphasis in the wrong place. We put the emphasis on Joseph, and we say, oh, look how great Joseph is, because he comes along and he saves it. No, it's the effects of the individual on the community that matter more than the individual achievements themselves. Do you understand what I'm saying? It's the community that matters. That's their focus. And when you change your perspective from individuals to the community, it shifts everything about the way that you understand success and tragedy. I'm going to tell you another story, and this story is going to help us to kind of bring all of this into perspective. I've told this story actually a couple of weeks ago. I didn't mean to actually put these so close together, but it's the same story, but it's a good story because it really highlights this. All right. 
This story takes place September 15, 1963, Birmingham, Alabama, at the 16th Street Baptist Church. The KKK had put a bomb inside of that church to blow it up. And unbeknownst to them, early in the morning, there were five little girls there who were inside the church who were getting everything together for Sunday services. Now, why did they choose the 16th Street Baptist Church? They chose that because that is where King went. It was the center of his hub for the civil rights movement in Birmingham. So inside that church, you had Addie Mae Collins, Denise McNair, Cynthia Wellesley, Carolyn McKinstry, and Carol Robertson. Now, Carolyn McKinstry, she's the only one who survives of the five girls. The other girls all die, and three of them were 14. Denise McNair was 11. 60 years later, it is still incomprehensible the level of this tragedy, and these girls were killed because they were black, period. Period. Now, what happened in this situation is something that the KKK couldn't have envisioned, which is that people were so angry and so upset across the country. Not, and these are people, by the way, many of the people in the South who normally had kind of turned their a blind eye to this, even they, these people who harbored very racist sentiments, even they thought this was a step too far. And what ends up happening is that because of this event, because these little girls were killed in this, it actually swayed people to support the civil rights legislation that would pass five months later in 1964. This was a huge, pivotal event. Now, that's the story. Let's take a look at that story from our two perspectives, from the perspective of the Western world, individualism, and from the perspective of the community. Now, I think something that you all are probably well aware of is that as individuals, there is no such thing as justice. It just doesn't exist. On an individual level, justice does not exist in our world, period. What would be justice for those little girls? Even if you capture the guys who did it, you put them in prison, and you put, or you put them to death, is that justice? No, that's not justice. Justice would be bringing those girls back to life, which you cannot do. Just not possible. And this is why justice doesn't exist on an individual level in our world. But when you look at it from the perspective of a community, that changes it a little bit. Because when you look at how those girls' deaths impacted the black community and the community in the United States at large, it does have a different impact. Because you can see how the deaths of those girls impacted the larger community that then changed public sentiment that then got that legislation passed. But this brings us back to the plan, right? God's plan. So let's go through the process. What happens? Those KKK members, they place the bomb in the church. God planned for that? The girls go into the church to start getting ready for services. Did God plan for that? The bomb goes off and kills those girls. Did God plan for that? Then public outcry comes out, and all of a sudden, everything shifts and sways, and now the civil rights legislation can pass. Did God plan for that? You see, the way we normally would think about it, right, is that if you look at those sequence of events in the same way that we look at Joseph or Jesus, we would say, oh, 
God was engineering the variables, getting you ready. Yes, they were sacrificed, but look at what came out of it. And that's, of course, I would say no. I would say it is choice and chance. The KKK members make a choice. Unfortunately, those little girls were there because of chance. At the time, they happened to be there. And that's why that happened. And when that happened, God wasn't expecting any of that. God cried right along all of us. God was just as shocked. But then, what did God do? God did what only God can do. God brought light to a place of unimaginable darkness. And this is where God makes a difference. And what do I mean by that? Because what God brings to every single person is what is known as a spirit of redemption. Inside of every single one of your hearts, everybody in here, everybody watching online, everybody in the world is what we call a spirit of redemption. And you know what that spirit is? It is connected to God's unconditional love. We started with that at the beginning, remember? God's unconditional love. That is inside of your hearts, every single one of you. And you can choose, this is the thing, it is your choice whether or not you want to access that. So, when those girls died, right, what happens? There were enough people who were in touch with that spirit of redemption, that unconditional love inside of their hearts, that it changed their perspective enough to want to back the civil rights movement, to be able to create that legislation because they said, we do not want this to happen to anybody else. We need this to stop. Now, was it guaranteed to work? Did God know that was going to happen? No, because it's a choice to use that. It can remain dormant. And if you know anything about the South and the Civil Rights Movement, it did for a long time. I mean, people were lynched and killed all over the place, and it didn't change anybody's opinion, but this did. And there was enough outrage at that moment that it just opened the door. Every time there was a little bit more outrage, and it opened the door a little bit wider so that God could create this opportunity for some justice to be brought to those little girls' deaths. That, my friends, is how the plan works. That is God's plan for your life. It is God's spirit of redemption inside of you that can bring redemption to the world. Can God do it for you? No, because it is your choice as to whether or not you want to use it. And it's right there inside of your heart, and you have a choice. If you want to use that unconditional love that's inside of you that you're connected to, that can open the door, and that's the plan. And that's my prayer for you, is that you would realize that you can change the world with that spirit of redemption that's inside of you. You can bring justice to unjust situations. You can uplift the poor and the oppressed. You can bring light to places of unimaginable darkness. But without you, it doesn't happen. Like, you've got to realize that it is you. You are the hands and feet. Without you, there is no plan. But to execute that plan, right, on an individual level, if you do that, you can make a difference. But what happens if all of us work together? That is how God's plan of redemption comes together. Martin Luther King Jr. once said, the ark of justice in the universe is long and that is because it takes all of us working together not just one generation but over many generations to create redemption in our world and I hope that you would join me and be a part of that redemptive process because that is God's plan for our lives. Amen. Thanks for listening and if you want to learn more about First Presbyterian Church of Arlington Heights please visit www.firstpresah.org. 
For more information on service times, directions, and to learn more about the First Pres family of faith.